And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Lloyd, Lloyd Ogilvie was eating breakfast one morning in a restaurant and in the booth next to him a man punctuated his reading of the morning paper with deep groans of discouragement. With every page of the national and international news, these sighs became more profound. The waitress was concerned about him, and she said, Pardon me, sir, are you okay? You look like you're distressed. Of course I am, he shouted. I, haven't you read the morning paper? I'm sick to death of all this bad news. Oh, she said, but well, we've got to have hope. Have hope, he thundered. How can we have hope in a world like this? How do you answer that question? I suppose it's on the lips of everyone in this world. How can we have a hope? How can we have hope in a world like this? That's the issue of Christmas. Carl Menninger of Menninger, of Menninger Clinics said, when it comes to hope, our shelves are empty. And Ogilvy said that everybody got into a discussion and everybody was engaged in this debate. And Ogilvy gave his answer. He said, I don't have hope in this world. My hope lies beyond this world. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. With the arrival of Christmas, there begins to be a little hope. A fire, a light of hope begins to flicker, even if temporary. Because there is a little bit of hope being born at Christmas time that lies beyond this world in the man who was Christmas. Evidently, the authors of the carols believed that and wrote, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy, the, thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. With the arrival of Christmas comes the arrival of hope in the man who was Christmas. For Christmas is a person and not a place. On December the 24th, 1888, Captain John Cook discovered a remote island in the South Pacific and named it Christmas Island. A lot of people like to send their cards to Christmas Florida so they can be stamped from there. And everybody thinks, we got a card from Fred and Hazel who are in Christmas Florida. And everybody likes, every child likes to go to Santa Claus, Indiana 
where the town motto is, where it's Christmas all year long. If I could just find some Christmas island, I, and, and, and I could get to Christmas Island, everything would be all right. The grass is always greener there. I'll make this move and it will be the last. There's some utopian Christmas Island somewhere. When I find it, everything's, everything will be all right. He came into my office not long ago asking for help. We have them come through here, scores of them, every, every year. This guy was a little bit different. He, he seemed a little more sincere. He seemed a little more willing to work. And we got to talking, and he said, I moved to Durant to, to get a job and haven't been able to find one. He said, I, I don't beg. He said, I'm not a beggar, and I'm embarrassed about having to do this, but I need some help. My question was, why did you come to Durant looking for work? He said, well, my family used to live here a long time ago. I visited here before. And he said, I just thought if I could get to Durant, everything would be all right. If I could just get to Christmas Island, if I could just move to Christmas, Florida, if I could just go to Santa Claus, Indiana, where it's Christmas all year long, things would be all right. But Christmas is a person, not a place. And Christmas is a person and not a possession. If I just had his job, if I just had that salary, if I could just live in his house, if I could just have his money. And somehow all of us have the idea that, that Christmas, that being all right has to do with possessions. How many times have you said, we're not going to have a very good Christmas this year. What your meaning is, we're not going to have very many packages and presents because even you have and I have equated Christmas with things, with presents and packages and toys. In the Philippine Islands, they get started early every year caroling. And these carolers go from house to house singing carols, expecting them to give them some money for their, for their caroling. And if the householder is slow to respond, they'll say something like this, My Christmas, sir, my Christmas. Kind of a yuletide trick-or-treat. How many times have you heard someone ask a child, How was your Christmas? And the child will say, Oh, it was great. I got this, and I got this, and I got this. Christmas is a person and not a possession. And Christmas is a person and not a point in time. On your calendar, the month of November has a big red circle, the 25th of December. We don't really, of course, know when that first Christmas occurred, probably not in December. Christmas is any day of the year. In a former pastorate, I was sitting with my staff one day and we were planning the calendar for December. We had these seminary interns working with us and one of them asked the question, well, what day is Christmas this year? And the guy sitting across from him on, in the, at the table had this incredulous look and he said, well, the 25th, just like it always is, it hadn't changed. It comes on the same day. I suppose he didn't realize that we were talking about the day of the week instead of the day of the month. Christmas is any time. Said Charlie Brown to Lucy, 
I wish we could just have Christmas all year long. She replied, what are you, some kind of a fanatic? And so a man sat down at his easy chair watching the evening news on January the 3rd. And outside the door he heard this little voice singing, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And he went to the door and he found his neighbor's son standing outside his door singing carols. And he said, son, didn't you know that Christmas is over? Well, he said, I know it, but he said, I had the measles on Christmas Day and I didn't get to go caroling. I was going, why not sing caroling, carols all day, all year long, every day? Well, Christmas is a person and not a point in time. Christmas is a person, a real person. For the one we celebrate today is not some fable or fantasy. Now that's not to rob, that's not to say we should rob our children of the joys and the fun of fable fantasy. I'm not, you know, the Grinch who stole Christmas. But it is to say that we need to grow up enough to know that the man who was Christmas is not Santa Claus. The man who is Christmas is a very real person. And these shepherds said, let us go and see this thing told us. And they came to the manger and saw him, a real human being, flesh and blood. Now when the church began in the first and second centuries, they had these great conferences, church councils, trying to hammer out what should be in Scripture. And there were those there known as the docetics who said, God could not have become a man. What we've celebrated in the birth of, in, in, in Bethlehem, is not the birth of a real person. This is not, God could not be a man. And doceticism was this philosophy that taught that really Jesus was a, a ghost, a vision. It was a fantasy and a dream, and a fable. And Gnosticism sprang up in that time, teaching that Jesus was not a real person, not God in the flesh. And so John wrote his epistle and said, That which was from beginning, that we have seen and heard and our hands have handled, that which was from beginning we have experienced ourselves, our hands have handled him. And he said it to the point of redundancy. We've seen him with our eyes. We've heard him with our ears. We've touched him with our hands. He is real. He came into this world the same way you and I came into this world, born of woman. In Zika, Yugoslavia, there is this little church that has seven doors. They didn't need seven doors. It wasn't that large. But seven Serbian kings were crowned in that little church. And every time they crowned another, they didn't think he should enter through the same door as his predecessor. He entered the same door you and I entered, through the womb of a woman. And he worked in a carpenter shop and his hands got calloused. And he walked, when he walked the streets, walked the dusty roads, his feet got dirty and blistered and his legs chafed. 
intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. He grew and he learned. Max Lucado describes it in ways that I wish I could describe it. This is what he said. The angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure, he was completely divine, completely human. For 33 years he would feel everything you and I have felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. He got his feelings hurt. He got tired. His head ached. He was real. And a man got out in the driveway and shooting goals with his, his little boy and Little boy was just not able to get the ball up to the goal, and the father would take the ball and say, See, shoot it like this. And he'd toss it in the basket. Little boy would strain to try to get it, couldn't get it up even to the goal. And the father kept saying, Shoot it like this, it's easy. Shoot it like this. Finally, the little boy said, It's easy for you up there, but it's hard for us down here. From up there, it may be easy. He got down here where we are. And the author of the book of Hebrews said it over and over again. He himself was just like we are, yet he never sinned. He himself was one of us. I was riding home, I was driving home the other night from the airport, and I tuned in one of these talk shows. They had a lady on there, uh, a graduate of one of the, graduate of one of the elite uh, women's universities, and she had written a book called, entitled Plain and Simple. And she had gone up to Pennsylvania and had lived for several months with the Amish. And she wrote this book about the Amish people, and people were calling in to ask her about it. She spent months with them. They knew she wasn't one of them. And eventually they knew that she would leave and, and, and write a book about them, even though she had spent some time with them and was there with them for a while. She wasn't one of them. He came only to live 33 years with us here. But he was one with us, feeling what we feel, experiencing what we experience, knowing what we know. He's a real person. Christmas is a person, a divine person. In 1988, Time magazine ran an article about the death of the emperor of Japan, uh, Hirohito, under the title, the, the God Who Became Man. This man declared to be God. The people thought he was God. 
when he passed, they would look down. They told their children, never look at him or you'll be stricken blind. After the war, the victorious allies made, made him give up his, his title of divinity. Thus, the God who became man. There was only one time that happened. At Bethlehem, very God of very God became very man of very man. And Paul put it like this, he was manifested in flesh. Now you don't say children are manifested, you say they're born. You don't even say animals are manifested, you say animals are born. But when he came to Bethlehem, he was manifested, a reference to the fact that he had always been. Centuries before there was time and space, he was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham went out to establish a new nation, and before Moses brought that new nation into freedom, and before David brought it its greatest glory, Jesus, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He was called Emmanuel, God with us. They called him Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He was called the only begotten of God. What were they, what did they mean when they called him that? Well, they knew that he was more than man, but they didn't really understand how it could be. They sensed in Jesus God's presence more than in any other time in their life. They didn't understand it. And they went to the realm of Jewish theology and they found this title, Messiah. It's the highest title that could ever be given one. And they looked at Jesus and they said, Messiah. And they went to Greek thought and they found the title, the highest title ever could be given, Logos. And they looked at Jesus and they said, Logos. And they went to the realm of biology and they called him the lily of the valley. And they went to the realm of astronomy and they called him the bright and morning star. And they went to the realm of geology and they called him the rock. And when it was all over, they said, this is not enough, this man is God. And Luther was right when he said, if we cannot call him God, we are undone. He was a divine man. He was a giving person. That's what Christmas is about. That's where gifts at Christmas come, I think. And if you want to duplicate or replicate what happened at Bethlehem, there must be gifts. I know you've been noticing on the news the increasing of violence in Northern Ireland. There is something going on over there that you and I cannot relate to. It's more than, than religious, even though Catholics and Protestants are fighting in Northern Ireland. It's social and economic and political. 
1979, from 1979 to 1981, some of the most violent acts occurred in Northern Ireland, and some of them occurred in Mays Prison in Belfast. A group of terrorists in the IRA were arrested and placed in Mays Prison, and they decided to go on a strike to focus on their plight and to harass the British. They wouldn't eat, they wouldn't bathe, they wouldn't wear clothes, they wouldn't leave their cells. They cut holes in blankets and pulled them over their heads and they sat on, that's all they would wear, and they sat on the stone floor of their cells in protest. They took their own excrement and smeared it on the walls and rinsed their hands in urine. Their hair and their beards were matted and streaked with filth. Visitors were non-existent. People would come to their cells and the stench was so great they would vomit. Many of them fainted. Nobody came to see them. Until Christmas Eve, 1980, a woman by the name of Gladys Blackburn, a retired school teacher, a saucy old lady who was less than five feet tall, was eating a, little lunch, eating a little brunch in her home thinking about what she could do for Christmas. And she thought to herself, how can I best replicate the fact that God came down to a stable and May's prison came to her mind? Oh no, she said. Don't ask me to go, Lord, to May's prison, to that place that stinks worse than a stable. And God just laid it on her heart over and over. May's prison, May's prison. So she dressed and she caught a ride and she headed out to prison, May's prison. And through the endless hours of red tape, she finally got on the inside and told the folks, what the officials, what she wanted. They said, why don't you go and visit Chips? He's a young man in prison who's been asking about Christianity. He'd studied communism, he'd studied atheism, fascism. And so she went into that cell where Chips was, in the stench of it, in the, in the horror of it. And she sat on the stone floor with him, trying to replicate, replicate what happened at Bethlehem. And she told him about Jesus. And she came, and she was there when he came to know Jesus Christ. And God entered his life. And Chips went out of his cell, the long and short of it is, that he's now engaged with Chuck Colson and prison fellowships and has seen many of his terrorist friends come to know Christ. Said Gladys Blackburn, I wanted somehow with my life before I died to picture what happened at Bethlehem. And I did. He left the coronations of heaven for the condemnations of earth. He left the excellencies of glory for the executions of earth. He turned away from the favor of the Father to the fury of man. 
He went from the joys of glory to the jeers of earth. He left the magnificence of heaven for the miseries of earth. He gave up the throne of glory for the tree of Golgotha. He gave up his life. And the scripture says it is an unspeakable gift. He is a person. Is Christmas a saving person? And here's the kicker. And they said, go to Bethlehem, for there is one born there who is Savior. It's what every one of us needs. Now he came to teach, but that's not why he came. He came to live out the ethic of how everybody is to live, but that's not why he came. He came to save you from your sin. Now the Jew thought he's come to save us from the Romans. He came to save from their sin. And John Calvin said that the meaning of these words first is that these people to whom Christ was sent to save are in themselves lost. And somehow, for some reason, in some way, everyone has turned to his own way and needs a Savior. More, you, more than you need anything else in your life today, you need a Savior. He's Christ the Lord. Have you heard of G. Garden Liddy? Perhaps the most infamous of all the Watergate conspirators, G. Garden Liddy. Let me just tell you a little bit about him, then we're through. G. Garden Liddy grew up a weak, sickly boy with many fears. And he decided that he would overcome his fears by facing them in this kind of a, uh, 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 unusual way. Um, ex extreme way. For example, he was afraid of electricity and heights. And so to overcome those fears, he climbed up on the, he'd climb up on top of high electrical towers. He was afraid of rats, so he baked one and ate part of it. He, he became this folk hero of the Watergate era. He was an FBI agent. He was a pilot. He was a, he was a White House um, aide. And he was sentenced to 21 years for his part in the Watergate conspiracy. He studied Nietzsche the famous German philosopher who venerated the will to the point of power as the goal of life. And he saw everything as a challenge, as a goal that he was supposed to overcome. When Chuck Colson was saved, somebody asked G. Garden, Lilly, G. Garden Liddy, have you found the light? He said, I'm not even looking for the switch. When he got out of prison, he was interviewed by the press. He quoted long lines from Nietzsche in German. They didn't even know what he was talking about. 
He started two or three successful businesses. Everything was going great. He was on the David Letterman show because he starred in a role in, in Miami Vice, the, the macho show. And David Letterman asked him one night, while he was on his show, what happens to us when we die? And G. Garden Liddy said, we become food for the worms. That's all he said, that's all. That was his mistake. He couldn't get away from that question and his answer. Is that all? Some of his FBI agent friends invited him to come to Washington. And, and, and get involved in a Bible study. And because they were FBI agents, he, he, he agreed. He, he told them one night, he said, I am at best an agnostic, and my philosophy is that we are finite and God is infinite, and the infinite God cannot communicate with a finite man without some vocabulary, and then it hit him. That's what this is. And that's what Jesus is. It's the vocabulary by which the infinite God speaks to finite man and the first word he says is save. And G. Garden Liddy became a believer. And he said, quote, Now my biggest task daily is to find the will of God for my life. How do you have hope in a world like this? By placing your faith in the man who was Christmas, a real person, yet divine, who gave up everything to be your Savior. Would you bow your heads? Is there anyone here today who needs a Savior? Oh, would you come today to this point in life where you could say, Lord Jesus, I need you to save me I put my trust in you. I cannot save myself. The church can't. Baptism hasn't. Doing good won't. I trust you and you only. Would you ask Jesus right now to save you?